Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter number 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be this evening. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach this evening and just share with you the burden that God's laid on my heart and an area that He's been dealing with me about. And uh, Brother Yusuf mentioned that uh, the promise that Christ gave, that where two or three are gathered, there He is in the midst. And I'm sure glad there aren't just three this evening. And uh, I knew there were going to be a lot of people out, so I'm glad you came. I appreciate you being here more than you realize. It's uh, not very much fun to just preach to yourself. And so, um, but I'm excited about this evening what the Lord's laid on my heart. Let's take our Bibles and let's stand together. We're going to read John chapter 20 and just read a few verses here, beginning in verse number 19, and I'll let you uh, be seated once we finish. The Bible says in verse number 19, Then the same day at evening, beginning the, uh, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the, disciples, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto him, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Thank you. You may be seated. I was reading a story about the automobile genius Henry Ford and the time where he came up with this revolutionary new plan for a new kind of engine that no one had ever attempted before that we know today as the V8. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be a lot, be knowledgeable about cars. I really know very little. Uh, but uh, I was reading this story, and it accounted that Ford was very eager to get this new idea into production. He thought this was going to revolutionize the automobile industry as it ended up doing. And so he had some men draw up the plans for uh, what this would look like, and he presented it to the engineers to look at. And they studied the drawings, and one by one, they all came to the same conclusion. And that is, this is impossible. There's no way that this can be done. And the, the boss that we have here, Henry Ford, he just, he just doesn't know very much about the fundamental principles of engineering. And we're going to have to let him down easy on this one that it's just impossible. It can't be done. And Ford, they came and told him that and uh, told him his dream was impossible. And he said, produce it anyway. He said, stay here as long as you need until you can get it done, no matter how much time is required. And so for six months, they struggled and there was nothing. Drawing after drawing, design after design, they were unable to make this a reality. After six months, there was nothing to show for their work. And at the end of the year, Ford checked back in with them and asked the engineers how they were doing. And once again, they told him, this is impossible. This can't be done, uh, building this VA engine. And uh, Ford told them, keep on going, and they did. And you know the story. Eventually, they were able to create this uh, engine that they thought was impossible. Have you ever faced an impossible task? You ever faced something you just thought, man, humanly, this is impossible. This, this can't be done. And you know, I was thinking about this account here and thinking about this sending that Christ uh, gave to his disciples, this commissioning that really he's given to each one of us as his uh, followers, as his disciples. Really, Jesus has called us to a humanly impossible task. I mean, you think about it, worldwide evangelism, taking the gospel into all the world, that's a humanly impossible task. But I also think about the fact that with this commission, he's also enabled us by the Holy Spirit's power to accomplish the task that he's given to us. 
You know, we're to take the gospel into all the world. The disciples were hearing this for the first time and they were being commissioned and sent forth and they were to take the gospel into all the world. And we read about it in other places like Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And that same task that was given to those men some 2,000 years ago, it was an impossible task for them. I mean, you think about their backgrounds. These were men who were uneducated. These were men who were fishermen. These were men who were tax collectors. They weren't prestigious men of renown. They weren't men of great wealth and fame. They weren't people who were philosophers and great orators. They were ordinary men given this humanly impossible task. And yet the Bible tells us that these same men were the ones who turned their known world upside down. We read about it in Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. It says, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither. These disciples were not superhuman. They weren't able to make the impact they did because of their pedigree or abilities. They were able to accomplish what they did because they were surrendered vessels through which the Holy Spirit was able to work. Their success in seeing thousands of people saved and baptized on the day of Pentecost, it wasn't because they were experts when it came to evangelistic methodologies. Their success in planting churches in the first century wasn't a result of their charisma and their people skills. The disciples, they didn't manufacture their results. They didn't have to scheme in order to get things done. They didn't make decisions on where to go and what to do based on what they thought they could accomplish. The disciples, get it, saw miraculous workings of God because they chose to live in the realm of the impossible and they allowed the Holy Spirit to enable and to accomplish them, uh, accomplish in them what only he could do. You know, the life of a spirit-filled believer doesn't live in the realm of the explainable. He lives in the realm of the impossible. And we serve the God of the impossible. We sing about it. We preach about it. But can I tell you, he's still alive and well. I heard a story about a young boy who was traveling to see his grandparents. He was on an airplane and he was sitting beside a seminary professor. And the boy was there. He was reading a Sunday school handout. And the professor thought he'd have some fun with the boy. And so he asked the boy, he said, he said, if you can tell me something that God can do, I'll give you a nice, shiny apple. The boy thought about it and he looked back at that seminary professor. He said, mister, if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a whole bunch of apples. And his point is that, there's nothing that God can do. God is the God of, of the impossible. And God is looking for men and women that he can use to accomplish great things in the day and age in which you and I live. And so this evening, I want to look here at this passage. I want to look at the extraordinary enabling of these disciples and see a couple of things that we can glean from their life and how we can live in the realm of the impossible in our lives. And so if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. I, put, I wrote down, number one, the setting. We see the setting, and it's important to understand the context in which this commission was given to these disciples. And we read about that in verses 19 and 20, where it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith, saith unto them, Peace be unto you. 
And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Just a few observations that I see here in these couple of verses. Here we find the disciples on the Sunday night after Christ has, uh, has been crucified. And they're there in, the upper room, uh, there in that room and they're gathered together and they're in hiding. And the doors were locked. Jesus, again, he had just been crucified a few days earlier. And we notice a couple of things about them. And we see, first of all, the disciples, they were fearful. They were fearful. I mean, you don't hide because you're not afraid. They were hiding. They were in a room. They had locked the doors. They, they had witnessed firsthand the hostility of the Jews toward Jesus. They didn't know if this same hostility was going to manifest itself against them. They, had, uh, they, they didn't know if they were going to be taken as Christ's followers. They didn't know if they were going to be beaten publicly. They didn't know if they were going to be crucified like Jesus was crucified. They didn't know. And the disciples were fearful. It says they were, they were hiding there for fear of the Jews. They were afraid of the what ifs. They were afraid of the unknowns. They didn't know what was coming next. Their whole world had just been turned upside down by this event. But not only were they fearful, but they were hiding. Again, the doors, it says, were locked. They were meeting in secret. They didn't have uh, fully, a full understanding of the truth of Christ's resurrection. Really, all they knew is that Jesus' body was missing. The authorities probably suspected them. And then two of them had this strange encounter with a man on the road to Emmaus. And so they were fearful. They were hiding. But notice, too, they were grieving. They were grieving. You see, their Messiah, he had just been crucified days earlier. The one that they had left everything to follow. The one that they had believed would usher in this new kingdom. Now he's gone. He's been crucified. He was killed. The one that they had committed their lives to follow was no longer there. And you don't lose someone that close to you and it not affect you in a profound way. And so they were distraught. They were in despair. This man had literally changed their lives. He had altered their life's direction. They were willing to do everything and anything in order to follow him. And now he's gone. And they had witnessed his betrayal. They had witnessed his mockery of a trial. They had witnessed the crowd's rejection of him. They had witnessed his crucifixion. And no doubt they were grieving the loss of their Messiah, their Christ, their Savior, their friend. And so it's in this context that we see Jesus is appearing to these disciples and he's giving them this great assignment. And Jesus, notice how he greets his disciples. It's a very simple greeting, but he says to them, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. He's offering his disciples peace. In the midst of their fears, he's offering them comfort. And this salutation was really meant to banish their fears, to banish uh, their despair. And he appears to them and it says he shows them the scars in his hand and the scars in his side. And what he's doing is he's showing that I am indeed the risen Christ. I'm the living one. I'm the risen Savior. I've conquered death. Satan has been defeated. Victory and eternal life has been secured. And so the setting in which Jesus gives them this impossible assignment, it's not what I would have thought of if I were planning it. I think really it's, it's one of the great evidences of the accuracy of the Bible. I mean, you think about the fact that as John is penning these words and accounting what took place on the resurrection, you know, you think about if you and I were to write that, we'd have probably written it a little bit differently, right? We don't want to make ourselves look bad. So we would have probably said something like, 
Three days earlier, uh, or three days later, the disciples, they marched boldly to the tomb of Jesus. They demanded the Roman soldiers, show us the body, show us where Jesus lay. And afterwards, they went throughout the city boldly preaching the gospel of Christ. But that's not what we read about. The disciples, they're hiding. The doors are locked. And it's the ladies who are doing all the work. That's how you know the Bible's not lying. Uh, but in the context here, in John chapter 20, in which Jesus is giving his disciples this great commission, it's not some spiritual pep rally. It's not like everything's going great. It's not like we're, we're just conquering one thing after another. These aren't men who are full of courage. These are men who are fearful, who are afraid, and who are in despair. They, they, these aren't the, the people who are ready to charge hell with a water gun. Uh, they're the ones who are cowering. They're fearful. They're hiding. They're grieving when Jesus shows up in, his midst, in the midst. And so it's important to understand the setting. But notice, secondly here, I wrote down the sending. We see the sending. And look in verse number 21. It says, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And again, we see Jesus using this same salutation, peace be unto you. The first time, Jesus was trying to banish their fears, and it was in, intended to ease their fears. But the repetition here of the phrase has another purpose. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's trying to instill in them courage. He's trying to encourage them. He's reminding them of their, uh, their assignment. He's recalibrating their focus, if you will. I mean, think about it. Imagine what those last few days were like for the disciples. Imagine what, what they must have been thinking. Imagine the thoughts that would have been running through their minds. They were afraid. They were confused. They had these, these intense shifts of emotion from deep sadness over the fact that their Messiah had been crucified to now this great moment of rejoicing, realizing he's alive. He's risen just like he said he had done. You think about uh, he was, the fact that they went from thinking, man, he's the Messiah. Crucifixion, this, this, this can't be in the plan. This can't be part of how it was supposed to happen. They didn't fully understand the prophecies that had been given. He wasn't supposed to die. And th so they went from thinking that to all of a sudden, wait, he's alive? He, he, is this really him? Can this really be? They're trying to process all that was taking place. And we can only imagine where their mind might have been. And so the sight of Jesus, what it did, it restored order to the thoughts of the disciples. The crucifixion was no longer the ruin of their faith because there was a resurrection. Christ was alive. Jesus is wanting his disciples by saying, peace be unto you, to rest their thoughts. To rest their thoughts. To remind them of the task that Jesus had for them. He's saying, look at my hands. Examine my side. I'm the living one. I've conquered death. I've defeated sin. I've got the scars to prove it now. Just as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. See, he comforts the disciples, but then he commissions the disciples. He's telling the disciples, it's time to get to work. Remember the task that I told you about? Let's do it. Let's get to work. This is what Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17 and verse 18, where he said, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. He had commissioned them to take his place as the Father's ambassador here in this world. And so he sends them forth with the authority to do so. This was a huge assignment. This wasn't an easy task. You think the disciples, when they heard that, as the Father hath sent me, so sent I you. You think they thought, yeah, Jesus, we got this. 
No big deal. Right. We got Levi's administrative skills. We've got Peter's great oratory ability. We'll get this thing knocked out in a few years. You think that's what they thought? No, they're probably thinking, man, how could we even do this? They're emotionally drained. They'd experienced this roller coaster of emotions. I'm sure they were still trying to process all that happened and all that it meant for them. See, Christ's crucifixion had thrown all of their plans out the window. I mean, consider it. Think about the fact that before that, they're looking forward to the establishment of a new kingdom. I mean, they're arguing with each other about who's going to have what place in that kingdom. They, they have these plans for what their future is going to look like. And now Christ is crucified and all those plans are out the window. They don't know. They feel like total failures. We don't, we don't even know what we're doing. We thought we had our life laid out and now everything has changed. Our whole world has been turned upside down. All of those dreams were shattered. They were without purpose and without despair before the resurrected Christ comes. And so Jesus gives them this assignment that seemed impossible to them. Humanly, it was beyond anything that they could accomplish on their own. And by the way, he wasn't calling them to a life of ease and luxury either. I think... When he says, as my father hath sent me, uh, so send I you, you could say it like this way. You could say, as God sent me to preach and to be persecuted and to suffer in order to make, will, make known his will and to offer forgiveness of sins to all men, so send I you. That's what he was offering to them. And you think about their commissioning and you look at the parallels and, and, and the, the common elements of Christ sending and the disciples sending. Notice a, a few of these parallels here. We see... Christ, he came in the Father's name, and the disciples came in Christ's name. Christ was sent that he might speak not of himself, but of what the Father hath said. The disciples, they were sent not to preach the dreams of human wisdom, but the word of God. The, Christ, he was sent not to destroy, but to save souls. And his disciples were sent with power to edify and not destroy, the Bible says. As Christ was sent, that through suffering he might enter into glory, even so he has given to us his guilt, uh, or sorry, his uh, shame, his reproach, his cross to bear, but we know that there's glory to follow. See, this task, it would require sacrifice. It would require a willingness, a willingness to lay down one's life just as Jesus was sent. And I think when the disciples heard, of, heard this commission, I don't, I don't think they're thinking about all the places they're going to go. I don't think they're thinking about all the sights they're going to see, all the people that they're going to meet. You know what I think they were probably thinking the most about? The scars. Jesus had just offered them evidence of who he was. He said, look at my hands. Look at my side. And it was a reminder of his authority. They were proof of his authority that he was who he said he was. The scars were reminders that there was a cost involved. There was going to be pain. There was a cross for them to bear as well. And so with this commission, the disciples were confronted with their own ineptitude. On the heels of their despair their, their, and, and their fear, they're presented with an assignment that they're wholly unqualified for. You know, really, I believe that was by design. I think that's exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. I think he wanted them to be in a place where they recognize that in order to fulfill the assignment, they're going to need some supernatural enabling. There's no way that they're going to be able to do that on their own. They had been, they'd been sent out before and they ran into problems when they tried to do it on their own. They came back to Jesus and said, Jesus, we don't know what to do. We can't do it on our own. See, the works of the flesh would bring death, but Jesus had come to bring life. 
And if the disciples were to be Christ's ambassadors, they would need Christ's resurrection power. And so we see the setting, we see the sending, but notice thirdly here, we see the supplying. The supplying. Look in verse number 22. It says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Here Jesus is giving them the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish the work that he has for them to do. Now this isn't the filling of the Spirit that's going to come later at Pentecost, but Jesus, he had commissioned these disciples and with the scars in his hand and his side, he declares the authority with which he's sending them and now he's revealing to them what will be the source of their power. The Spirit's enabling. He was indicating that he was going to not just commission them, but he was going to give them the resources necessary in order to fulfill the responsibility that they had. He's saying, listen, you're going to go with my authority, but you can't go in, my own, in your own power. You can go with my authority, but you can't go in your own power. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. See, the imparting of the Spirit here was a foretaste of that which they were going to receive on the day of Pentecost. And without the equipping of the Holy Spirit, the disciples, they were going to be powerless to engage in spiritual warfare. They were going to be, be powerless to fight the spiritual battles that they were to encounter. They would be powerless as they attempted to declare the message of the gospel to a lost world. Hey, listen, aren't you thankful that God doesn't just call us to do the impossible, but he enables us as well? Amen. You've heard the quote before, God doesn't uh, call the equipped, he equips the called. He gives us what we need. And Jesus not only entrusts us with the responsibility of proclaiming and declaring the gospel to others, but he equips us for the job as well. You think about some of the ways that he equips us, the Holy Spirit, he gives us the words to say. Luke chapter 12 and verse 11 and 12, and when they bring you into the synagogues and into, unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. Hey, he convicts our listeners of sin. John 16 and verse 8, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He draws men to Christ. John 6, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent, him, sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He sustains us in our difficult times. John 14, verse 26 and 27, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Holy Spirit, he gives us focus and substance to our prayers. Romans 8, 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He gives us the abilities to do what he's called us to do. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. And then he gives us Christ-like qualities. Galatians 5 and verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no long. He enables us to accomplish what he calls us to do. But here's the thing. The measure of the Spirit's fullness in one's life is really in direct proportion to the surrender in our life. 
In other words, you're not going to experience the Spirit's power if you're trying to live in your own strength. You're not going to experience. You're not going to experience the Spirit's leading if you're the one trying to make all the decisions. Amen. It's not how it works. See, the amount of the Spirit's fullness in our life is in direct proportion to our surrender to Him. And the Holy Spirit's power rests upon those who are obedient to Him. Hudson Taylor said it this way. He said, God gives His Holy Spirit not to those who long for Him, not to those who pray for Him, not to those who desire to always be filled. He gives His Spirit to those who obey. He gives His Spirit to those who obey. And the disciples were able to accomplish the work not because of their inherent greatness, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that was enabling them. They didn't worry about the unknowns. They didn't fear the rejections. What did they do? They responded in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And as a result, the Bible says they were able to turn their known world upside down. They saw miracle after miracle as they obeyed and followed the Holy Spirit's leading in their life. And so how about you? Are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing a life that is ordinary or are you experiencing a life that is labeled as extraordinary. See, the difference between those two is surrender. Surrender. Are you responding to what God has revealed in your life? Are you taking steps of faith as he leads you along? You might have given your life to Christ as salvation. You may have gotten saved and, 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 and came to him and surrendered to him for eternal salvation. But are you daily yielding to the, to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? See, there's no such thing as once-for-all surrender in the Christian life. It's day by day. It's moment by moment. So have you given the Holy Spirit complete access to your life? I think you can answer that question really by asking it in another way. Do you make your decisions based upon your ability to achieve the results? Or do you make your decisions based upon the Spirit's leading and equipping in your life? See, how do you respond when the Lord opens the door for you to be involved in a new ministry? You say, oh, you know, that, that's, that's, that's not my gifting. How do you respond when the Lord lays on your heart a financial need of the church? Oh, well, that's, that's just not in the budget. How do you respond when the Lord prompts you to witness to someone at work? Oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just really not that great at talking to people. Do you determine your response to God by evaluating your resources and abilities? Or do, you, or do you respond, yes, Lord, I trust the Holy Spirit to enable me as I obey you. See, that's the difference. That's the difference between looking to our own resources and looking to the Holy Spirit to enable us. A.W. Tozer said this, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity we only plan the things that we can do ourselves. See, the disciples, they didn't turn the world upside down because they lived within their comfort zone. They didn't make an impact uh, that they did because that was their gifting. They impacted the world that they lived in because they allowed the Holy Spirit to enable them to minister beyond their natural abilities. See, God's not looking for the talented to use. He's not looking for those who have extraordinary gifts. He's looking for those who are surrendered and obedient to him. God will pass by thousands of gifted people to find the one person that's surrendered to him. See, we tend to do what the children of Israel did in that we limit God. We confine God to, this, to, to a box in our life and we tell him, this is where you're allowed to work and, and this is where you're allowed to use me. And we don't even consider the possibility that God would want to do something outside of that. 
We define ministry opportunities. Define ministry opportunities without even, uh, decide ministry opportunities without even praying about it. We decide not to engage in witnessing to someone because they don't meet some superficial criteria that we've constructed. We make decisions based on material gains and losses rather than seeking and following the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's not surrender. That's not being yielded to Him. And by the way, God doesn't use our strength. God doesn't play to our strengths. God plays to our weaknesses. God specializes in using our weaknesses, not our strengths. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. He says, for when I'm weak, then am I strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 25 down through 29 says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God specializes in using our weaknesses. And so has it ever occurred to us that maybe God wants to put you in a situation that's outside of your comfort zone and to stretch you in order that he might be magnified and glorified in an even greater way? Why? Because it'll be obvious to everyone it wasn't you that did it. It was Christ through you that accomplished that work. See, Oswald Chambers said this. He said, the moment we recognize our complete weakness and our dependence upon him will be the very moment the Spirit of God will exhibit his power. Again, the effectiveness of the disciples, I can't stress this enough, wasn't a result of the greatness that they possessed. It was a result of the greatness of the one who possessed them. It was the Holy Spirit who was enabling them. It was a result of their total surrender to the working of, their Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit in their lives. In their own strength, they were hiding. They were fearful. They were grieving. But in the Spirit's power, we see them preaching to thousands in the streets of Jerusalem the resurrection of Christ. What was the difference? The difference was the Holy Spirit's enabling in their life. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I think about the moving of God that we read about in the first century, I can't help but think, man, wouldn't that be incredible to see today? Wouldn't it be amazing to see Thousands of people in a couple days get saved and baptized and added to the church. But, you know, in reality, that can still happen today. It can absolutely happen today. The same Holy Spirit power that was available to the disciples, it's available to you and I. The same Holy Spirit that indwelled Peter indwells you and I. We have, we have access to all the resources that they had access to. You say, well, what's changed? What's the difference? The difference is that the disciples understood the assignment. The disciples counted the cost. They were willing to set aside their comforts for the cause. They were willing to obey the Holy Spirit's leading in their life. Our problem is we're complacent. We're complacent. We're not looking for or expecting the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Sure, we want, to, we want Him to work when we call upon Him to meet our needs, but we resist Him during the invitation. We put off encounters with him for another time when it's more convenient to us. We resist when he leads contrary to our understanding. And when he speaks, we argue or we offer another option or we just tune him out altogether. And that's why we continue to live a life that's easily explained by human effort and ability rather than living a life 
that can only be explained by the impossible and the miraculous in our life. You know, I want God to use me. I want to be a vessel that he can work through. But at the same time, I recognize that whether or not that becomes a reality in my life is based on my surrender to him. My decision to yield my life and my ways to him. A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of God, he said, why do, why do some persons find God in a way that others do not? Why does God manifest his presence to some and let multitudes of others struggle along in half-light of imperfect Christian experience? Of course, the will of God is the same for all. He has no favorites within his household. All he has ever done for any of his children, he will do for all of his children. The difference lies not with God, but with us. With us. It's our decision. Do we want to surrender ourselves to him? Do we want to allow him to work the impossible and the miraculous in our life? And so what is it in our life that remains unsurrendered? Is it our time? Is it our career? Is it your finances? Is it your comfort? Is it your pride? Is it your will? Is it your abilities? Listen, God is so much bigger than all of those things. Would you surrender it to him? Would you allow God to do what you could never even fathom that he could do in your life? What if God were this evening to change the entire course of your life, the entire direction, your five-year plan out the window, something brand new he calls you to do? Would we resist it? Or would we say, Lord, whatever you'd have, whatever you want me to do, are we taking continued steps of obedience in our relationship to Christ? Is there clear evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Are other people growing toward Christ's likeness because of you? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to move you out of your comfort zone and into the Father's will? Are you actively involved in doing anything that requires faith? Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit, a power that's beyond your natural abilities? If not, there's a good possibility you're missing out on living life in the realm of the impossible. There's a good possibility that there's an area in your life that's not surrendered to him. Amen. So the challenge this evening is really simple. Will you surrender your life to him? Will you yield to him? You want to experience the miraculous? You want to, you want to see the impossible accomplished in your life? It begins by yielding to him. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed. And our eyes closed, and as the pianist comes, I just want to invite you this evening. The Lord's speaking to you. If He's put something on your heart, an area of your life where you're not surrendered to Him, why are you holding on to it? Give it to Him. As the piano plays, the altar's open. I just want to come invite you to do business with God. However He's speaking to you, respond. Don't put Him off. Don't resist Him this evening. Yield to Him.